Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irene Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed in this podcast are our own and not our employers. On our last episode, we talked about dating and mental health. Today, we are forging a new path by having our first ever unaccompanied male guest, Professor Ilya Somet. Today, Strangers on the Internet welcomes for the first time a solo male guest, none other than my co-blogger and George Mason University law professor, Ilya Somin. Ilya is a well-known scholar of constitutional law, property law, democratic theory, federalism, and migration rights. He has written multiple books, including most recently, Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom, as well as published in some of the most prestigious law reviews out there, such as the Yale Law Journal and Stanford Law Review. He has a BA from Amherst College, MA from Harvard University, and we share a law school alma mater in Yale Law School. Ilya blogs prolifically at the legal academic blog, The Vola Conspiracy, and has published op-eds in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and many other outlets. Ilya met his wife, Allison, in 2008 at an academic event after trying his hand at online dating in the good old days of Match.com. Allison and Ilya got married in 2010, and they now share two children. Allison is a lawyer herself, so we are sure they have lots of things to talk about. Even though Michelle and Ilya are chiming in from the same state and our show is absolutely the room where it happens, I will try not to break out into song with the temptingly fitting Hamilton line, two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room. Ilya, so happy to have you. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what your dating life was like, including online dating, before you adopted what you term a rationalist approach to dating? And then I, I know you've read a mix of academic and popular writings to make a change. Could you also talk more about how you figured out how to separate the wheat from the chaff and what to read and try? Sure. So the reason why I tried what you might call a rationalist approach to dating, that's not my term, it's uttered by others, is because there actually wasn't very much of a dating life to speak of before I decided to revamp things around the time I was 26 or 27. I was awkward and uncomfortable asking out women. And when I did do it, for the most part, I met with very little success. So I said, you know what? Doing what comes naturally is not really working very well here. And I want to do things differently. And I was then a graduate student and a law student. I said, well, you know, what I need to do is apply some of the same kind of analytical skills they use in other areas to this area. So I looked up both popular and more sort of academic literature on what works in terms of being more successful on the dating market, if you want to call it that, and also what works specifically in the area of online dating, which at that time in the early 2000s was beginning to be a big thing. And there were already studies on it as it turned out. And I learned a lot and the situation improved in various ways in the sense that I started getting many more dates than before. And I learned, I think there were useful lessons from both the more academic literature, which tried to study in a rigorous way, what is it that 
women look for in men and what is it that makes it more likely if you're on a dating website that a woman will respond to a man. I looked at the flip side a little bit as well, but obviously as a heterosexual man, I was more interested in what women were looking for than what other men were looking for. And I think also I learned from the you know, the popular uh, literature as well. How do you separate out the wheat from the chaff? That's a really good question that I think goes far beyond the area of online dating because there's a lot of information out there. It's quality varies. Because I'm an academic myself and have some background in social science research, I knew at least the basics of being able to figure out what sort of what's a reasonably well done study and what isn't. But also, I think this is an area where you can use some of what in my work on political information I call information shortcuts that other things equal in this area as in a lot of others, there is going to be some correlation between the quality of the research and the academic status and prestige and the like of the authors. That may be a bit less true sometimes with very ideologically charged issues, but at least at that time, the issue of sort of what is or is not successful online dating strategy wasn't that ideologically charged. So when I found studies from like the Chicago Business School, I could be reasonably sure that they were at least likely to be minimally competent in a way can better than random stuff off the street. It's harder to find shortcuts for what is the best sort of popular literature on this. But I do think people who search for information in this space they have some incentive to find good information. So books and websites and the like that were relatively popular on those kinds of points, there's at least some reasonable chance that they had quality advice. And in my case, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit to pick up. There's a lot of basic stuff that I didn't understand very well. So a lot of what in retrospect you could say is simple and obvious advice with stuff that I didn't pick up naturally through my own intuitions. And so even if I wasn't using the best possible advice books, there was a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit that I could pick off even from ones that might not have been the best. Well, thank you. I think that we might touch upon some of the low-hanging fruit pieces of advice we've certainly found on the podcast that as we've done multiple episodes, certain themes come up time and time again in different episodes. And I think it's that same kind of idea of when you've got so many books to choose from, at least if there are common themes that tend to come up, you can be reasonably confident there might be something to those. You also had written on social media about the way that dating is a numbers game and you have to keep putting yourself out there. And you explain that part of it is learning to deal with rejection. I've had this conversation many times with clients not only talking about dating, but also talking with them about applying for jobs. So much rejection abounds in both of those arenas. And it does make it hard to psych yourself up knowing that rejection could be a likely outcome. And yet it's a good skill to learn because it is something that can help you in different areas of your life, whether in dating or in job applications or other areas where if you really are gonna put yourself out for something you want, being prepared for this idea of rejection not being the end of the world. So could you tell us more about how you got yourself to a place where you were more accepting of that part of the process? I would say a couple things. One is just when you start to think about it and you realize that you need to begin to accept rejection, so to speak, that, that in itself is a big part of it. Also, rejection online, I found, and I think I'm not the only one, is particularly easy to deal with in that there's not even sort of the pain that you feel in a face-to-face interaction where you ask somebody else and they say no or they ignore you. If I sent a, a message to somebody on an online dating uh, website 
and they ignored me or Wes Wakely, they sent back a message saying, no, I'm not interested. This is very easy to get over. And you could easily tell yourself even that in many cases, it isn't even necessarily the case that they like objectively evaluated me and they said no. In some cases, maybe the woman wasn't even checking her profile as some people don't, or you know, they were dating somebody else at that time, but kept the profile up. There could be any number of reasons that have nothing to do with you. And in general, sort of rejection by a person that you've never seen in person, who doesn't know your real name, and so on. That's, I think, much easier to take, even than rejection where you ask somebody out, you know, in, in real life. And even that, I think if it's a sort of a momentary encounter with somebody we don't know very well, I think it's n- not nearly as bad as the far more painful situation where you know somebody you're really in love with them and they reject you. And that I think is genuinely painful. I've been there and anybody else think who's been there, you know, that that's a kind of pain that's hard to minimize. But when sort of somebody you don't know well at all says no to you, particularly on the internet, ultimately, I think it's not, it shouldn't be that hard to persuade yourself that it's not a big deal and you can move on. And if you think about it sort of in very simple statistical terms, if you think like each time I ask out somebody that's a plausible candidate, there's only a 1% chance that it will lead to something still, you do it a hundred times, there's a good chance, there's a high probability of success. And particularly with online dating, doing, a, doing it a hundred times need not even be that hard or time consuming. I think that you make a couple of really great points there that I want to emphasize for our listeners. And one is you said it shouldn't be that hard, but I can tell you it is hard for people to not personalize rejection. But I think you're absolutely right. If they can try to at least come up with one other potential reason why somebody may have ignored them or said no to them other than just there's something wrong with me, because the fact of the matter is, unless the person you're pursuing explicitly tells you it's a no for this reason, you don't know the reason. And so why invest with certainty and the idea that it's something wrong with me when you don't know for sure, when there are other reasons like the ones you mentioned. And so I think that can be so helpful to people just to essentially not put all their eggs of insecurity in one basket and to be able to say, well, maybe it's something with me, but maybe it's that they're dating somebody else or they haven't checked the apps in a while, or maybe it's just a fit thing, which is so often what it is, rather than a lack of attraction or lack of good qualities, it may be a combination of things. So I think that's a really important point for our listeners to bear in mind. And secondly, what you said about statistics, how that can be helpful. That brings me back to when I was applying to graduate school. And as a professor, well, all of us are, you know, when you deal with students applying to higher levels of education, having to talk to them about look, you want to know how competitive the programs are you're applying to, look into the statistics. I found that to be so helpful when I was applying to my doctoral program, because it helped me to get a sense of what are the odds of me getting in here? And then that informed how many programs should I apply to? What did I really consider my safe programs versus my long shot programs, things like that. And so I think that would be really comforting as much as rejection kind of stinks, nobody likes it. It would be helpful if you knew there's a 1% chance I'm going to get a positive response or anything like that. I don't actually know statistics on this. Do either of you about statistics of what are the likelihood of, of getting a hit on and an ask you put out there? So I don't know offhand what is the likelihood that a, that a sort of a randomly selected message from a man to a woman or vice versa on a dating app will get a response. We do know a lot about, and this is something I research as part of my rationalist approach as you label it, sort of what things make it more likely that you get a response. 
But I would also think that even as compared to something like applying to a graduate school, applying to a job, sending somebody a message on an online dating site is a very small investment of time and effort. And therefore, if you lose the investment, it's not really that much of a big deal. And obviously, if somebody that doesn't even know your name and hasn't met you in person rejects you or just ignores you, it shouldn't be the kind of blow that even a a job rejection is. What you said about jobs is true. And I actually tell that to younger academics and other people seeking opportunities in competitive industries. I have a, a piece that I wrote about getting books published where you know, you want to send out your proposal to different publishers and if some of them reject it, in the end, if you get a good publisher, nobody but you will know or care that you guys got rejected by some other publisher. You know, that's been true of some of my books, but I ultimately published them with good university presses and now nobody but me even knows or cares. And the same thing is true here. Like nobody but me remembers or knows how many women said no to me in online dating services or even in real life. And if I had let that get in the way, then there's a good chance I would still be sort of a, you know, an unhappy single person still thinking, well, why aren't women noticing me? Well, there are different reasons why they might not. But one reason is you're not making the effort to get noticed. So it turns out the, well, the stats vary all over the place. At one point in some older data, OkCupid said that about 32% of first messages get a response. Some other data suggests that men have about a 4% likelihood of getting a message back from a woman that's the same age. I guess that's how they you know, limited the data. And women have a 17.5% chance. So this, this is a little bit older data. I mean, this is from 2013. And, but there are, there are studies all over the place. In any case, the majority, which Whichever one we look at, the majority of first messages don't get a response, right? I think that's really the bottom line here. Uh, and I think Ilya uh, uh, is really presenting everybody with the right mindset that if you don't get responses to most of your messages, you're basically an average user on a website, more or less. It's like Michelle said, it's a matter of fit. So one of the things that uh, Ilya mentioned in his uh, social media posts about this that he realized is that men need to come up with a plan for dates, right? So why, Ilya, do you think so many men either don't want to do that, leave the planning up to women, uh, or they have a hard time with it even when they are trying? Did, did you find it tricky? So I think there's like several different questions there. Let me try to break them down. First, why is it that many men don't do this? Obviously, I don't know for sure. I haven't done the social science research on this, if there is any even, but I would say it's several things. One is probably many people just don't think about it. Second, there is the sense that we have in our culture that dating should be spontaneous and therefore it's somehow unromantic or bad if you plan. That's a second level reason why people might not do it. And then third, there is the rise, which in many ways is a good thing, of gender egalitarianism in the sense, well, you know, the sexes should be equal. And so women should play an equal role in planning dates or even plan them themselves. And on this third one, as a matter of ideological or moral principle, I largely agree. However, if you're thinking of, you know, trying to be more successful in your romantic or dating life. Sometimes there's a trade-off between making an ideological point on the one hand and having a successful date on the other. And if the second one is your priority, which in both of these situations it probably should be, then you may want to say, I'll leave the ideological discussion for another time rather than like start off by talking to women that she's not being feminist enough and therefore she should plan the date. Like it or not, even in this day and age, 
There are, of course, exceptions, but there is something of a social expectation, at least in heterosexual dating, that the man initially will take the lead in suggesting dating options and planning and the like. And most women, at least in my experience back then, but I've heard it similarly true now, most women, even those who are ideologically progressive and feminist, have that expectation. And in general, it's better to go with it than to try to sort of get around it or argue against it or whatnot. Last, you asked, well, how difficult is it? I've actually found it wasn't that difficult. You know, you should get to know the possible sites and dating locations and the like in your area. And that's a good thing to know, even if you're not searching for romance or whatnot, because it will increase your enjoyment of living in the area. One thing that I did is I contacted my colleague, George Mason, Tyler Cowan, who has a guide to DC area restaurants. So, you know, it has a good guide to restaurants of all kinds, even asked him, so would you recommend particular places as your possible date locations? And in most areas, whereas at least in the US, you can look up online guides to, you know, what are the best local restaurants, what are interesting local sites and so forth. And I think you will find that this is useful stuff to know, even aside from dating. So once you know, A, what are your interests, B, what's available in the area, and C, you have at least some sense of the interests of the kind of person you're interested in dating, then you, you know, you will have ideas in your mind and it's relatively easy to plug them in. You can even reuse them. Like the second or third person you date may not know that you went on a date to the same location with somebody else previously. But also obviously men should be open to the rare, but certainly not non-existing case where a woman has her own plan about what she wants to do. In one instance, somebody you met online, she wanted to go on a date to Arlington National Cemetery. I myself would never in a million years have suggested a cemetery as a dating location, but I do have an interest in military history. So sure, let's do it. And, you know, it turned out fine. That's so interesting. And Tyler's list is quite famous. I remember using it when I spent the summer in D.C., not for dating purposes, just to find good ethnic restaurants. Sure. But uh, but the uh, what I was going to say is I think some of the feminist perspective on the date planning has maybe shifted a bit in the sense that a lot of women today feel like, oh, great, like the man expects me to put in the mental labor to also plan dates sort of on top of everything else, right? And that that already sets up a dynamic of kind of like doing the work for him. So it's, it's kind of interesting to look at that evolution, right? And how uh, how the, the what is feminist and isn't feminist is it can be quite a quite complicated in that in that kind of setting. But I see what you're saying as far as traditionally the man as pursuer, right? Seeking out the, the location and planning all that uh, has has indeed been the the norm in many ways and, and that that's been seen as romantic. But Michelle, I feel like you want to jump in here. Well, I was actually thinking the exact same thing as you because because of an article you sent me recently about <laughs> that looked at how women can get frustrated by dating men who ultimately feel like just having another child to them, where I'm having to manage this man's schedule, like I would have to manage my child's, oh, what activity do they have today and things like that. And women get tired of that level of having to do all that mental or emotional labor. And so I totally agree about this idea of what is appropriate feminism or what, what feminism might look like here is really evolving and shifting. And I can appreciate how that can also be very complicated for men who are trying to make sense of it or for anyone who's trying to date a woman to make sense of how do I win here? <laughs> um, how do I let a woman know that I think she's just as capable as I am of planning a date 
but not making it seem like I expect her to or things like that. And I guess where my mind goes with that is just thinking back to something we've talked about several times on the show, which is default to courtesy. You know, most people like when other people are willing to take on the load of planning, it is a little bit of work, but you could also throw it out with a question of, you know, if that would work for you, or if that seems good to you, here's what I was thinking. And I feel like that then allows an opportunity for somebody to chime in and say if it would work for them or not. And so I can definitely appreciate the double bind it can seem to put people in. I'm so glad we're having those conversations. Yeah. So I think obviously things are a little bit different in different subcultures, but what I found was a relatively simple solution to this problem is that if I asked on someone on a date and they said yes, I would say like, here's my suggestion of what we can do. But if you have other ideas, I'm open to them. And what would happen is nine times out of 10 or so, she would say, yeah, let's do that. But every once in a while say, no, like I have this other idea. And then, you know, I would in most cases be open to doing the other idea. So it is true that as with a lot of things that depend on someone and exactly how you put it and how you phrase it. And part of the advantage of the numbers game we we're talking about earlier is that you get better at phrasing these things in ways that are effective, the more practice that you have. But in general, the advice that I would give to men in these situations is to have a plan and present your plan and don't be afraid to present it, but also to sort of indicate like you're willing to make changes or to try something else if the other person really does have you know, strong ideas of her own about what she wants to do, or if she just, for whatever reason, really doesn't like what, you know, the thing that you suggested. But it struck me that in the vast majority of instances, when I had a plan, the plan would just get accepted without very much in the way of efforts to change it or to suggest something else. I think that makes a ton of sense because people do just appreciate somebody else being willing to put in that little bit of labor. And also having the confidence to suggest something, kind of speaking to the point you had made earlier about how there can be some differences between asking somebody out online versus in person and how online, because the rejection doesn't sting as bad, you don't take it as personally, there also is a lot more asking going on online than in person because it's so much easier to just throw a question out to some stranger and if they don't like it, okay, no problem, move on to the next one. And so being on the receiving end, of those questions, you know, I think whether it's a man, woman, whoever, but if you're the one being asked out on a date, you've probably had multiple people express interest in you and then just fade off because of the low level of investment. And so it can be really frustrating when, when somebody expresses an interest in hanging out with you, but then never really gets around to making a plan. And you're just like, would you just show that I'm more than just an easy swipe on your phone? Like, do you have the 10 seconds it would take or maybe a little more to come up with a good plan and, and propose that? And so I think just showing that effort online can really help somebody to tell, are you serious or are you only chatting with me because you had a five minute break between two things you were doing? And so making the effort to show an idea for a date really shows some level of effort. And actually off of that point, I have another question for you. You have talked about earlier saying that you did notice differences between asking out people online versus in person in terms of how vulnerable it makes you feel. But did you notice, have you noticed any differences when you were back in the dating world about how it felt asking people out online versus in person? How did, did they respond differently online versus in person? Were the dynamics or the types of people you were meeting online versus in person different? 
So it's good questions. One obvious difference is that online, it's much easier to just ignore somebody completely. Whereas if you approach somebody in person, they probably have to say at least something, even if it's something, even if it's something like, well, I'm just really busy and I can't do anything, but they at least have to say something. But that very dynamic also makes it more awkward and makes it tougher to work up the courage to do it. The other important difference, take it from someone like me, like I don't naturally you know, notice social cues well or gauge nonverbal reactions well is that in person, there's all these nonverbal and social cues that people use as a significant part of their decision making often subconsciously, whereas online, there's very little of that because you don't actually see the other person at most, you see a picture of them. So one thing I did have to learn is not really about online dating as such, but one thing I, that I did learn in the various books were helpful was thinking about sort of how you break down the in-person interaction and how you approach it. And uh, I had to break certain habits that were intuitive to me, but which were counterproductive in the dating world, sometimes in the social world more generally. You know, there's a, a long list of these, and obviously they, these can help with online dating too, because if you're successful, you do eventually want to meet the the other individual in person, in most cases, I think you probably don't want to just carry on a purely online relationship, though I guess there are some people who do things like that. And so at some point you want to meet in person. And therefore, if you found over the years that you're sort of off-putting to the opposite sex in person, that it helped me certainly to think systematically about why that was the case. And I, I read a bunch of stuff about the, you know, what can be done. And there was some low-hanging fruit that was easily fixed. Like, for instance, I learned from a book that this is probably to most women, this is very obvious, but I learned, for instance, that your belt is supposed to be the same color as your shoes. And this is the kind of thing that women notice, whereas the vast majority of men, including me, would never think to look at anybody's shoes or notice what shoes they're wearing. I can't tell you what shoes anybody was wearing that I met in the last week, except for my kids, because I have to put their shoes on sometimes. Uh, but women are not like that. And I, many women, not all, but, but many. And I learned that from the book and you know, it was very easy to implement. Once I learned it, there were other things, you know, that are hard to implement, but come better with practice. And one thing I think it's important in person, but less so online, which, you know, you see that from both scientific research and from the popular advice books, it's sure you have to act confident even if you don't feel confident, because women, not all women again, but but many do judge men in part based on, does the man seem confident? Does it seem like he knows what he's doing? So you have to project that even if you don't feel it inside, or as they say in sports, act like you've been there before. And that you know was, was, was a very valuable insight, but it's harder to implement than some of these others because you have to sort of force yourself and get used to uh, doing it. So can you tell us more about this process? Because you're giving us some hints here. So you would read about something and you would learn that, let's say, social science says whatever, women like such and such. Like you said, in the belt example, fairly simple fix, right? But uh, we, we talk about social science a lot on the podcast, things people can do to their dating profiles and, and all of that sort of stuff and in relationships, what makes people happy. So how did you sort of, take this from an academic, okay, now I know these facts, but it's not intuitive to me. How do I integrate that? And, and is that something that you still do today? Like when you think about marital happiness today and, and like what's, how has your process evolved? So it's, it's a good question. I think with many things, like with the belt examples, once you learn them, they're pretty easy to implement. So for instance, I looked at the social science research, which tries to measure what determines, what makes it more likely that women will respond to a man when they communicate 
uh, on a dating website, one thing I learned is that the man's education matters. So for instance, I changed my profile to put down the fact that I had degrees from Harvard and Yale. When I first went on on, on online dating, some of my friends said, don't put that down, it looked pretentious. And I agree, maybe it is pretentious, but when I started putting it down, there were more responses than before. So it's clearly wise to put it down. Secondly, it turns out that even though it's very easy to lie about your income on online dating websites, still men with higher listed incomes are more likely to get response from women. I put down my income category. That, I, it's, uh, you know, that probably helped a little bit. And there's a lot of other things like that. They're relatively easy to change once you know about them because they don't require sort of constant attention or vigilance. You just fix it like once you're wearing a belt that's the same color as your shoes, you don't have to think about the stupid belt anymore. It's just there. Uh, all you have to do is remember anytime you go out in a situation where women might notice you, you you, you put on a belt uh, that it's the same color as your shoes. On the other hand, there are other things which are harder and come only with practice, like the projection of confidence that I mentioned, and that makes the numbers game more important. Do I still use this sort of stuff with marital happiness? It's a good question probably less so because obviously there I'm with one specific person. Hopefully other married people are with one specific person too. And you learn about that person and what matters is less the sort of generalization what that person needs. But I admit it's possible, you know, I could think more about, you know, marital happiness research, which is also it's, you know, it's its its own thing, probably requires another discussion of its own. But but I do think it's different that once you're with the one specific person, you, what you want to do is learn more about that person and what they want and need, which in some cases will correlate with general statistical averages and the likes, but obviously in some instances will not. I think that's a really great point that might be helpful for our listeners to reflect on as well. The idea of the guidance you can find in books or research, whether scholarly or popular press, will help you on average and maybe with the masses, but less so when it comes down to an individual person. And so you do want to intentionally change your tactics as you hone in on an individual who you're spending time with, become less reliant on what you read and more reliant on what that person is telling you or signaling about themselves. Many of the tactics, I think their goal is not to assure you of a happy relationship with one specific person. Rather, their goal is to maximize your chances of getting past that first couple of barriers of like, am I willing to even meet with this person? Am I willing to go on a second date? Questions like that. There, while there's nothing that can give you a 100% assurance that you will succeed with any given person, knowing more about sort of the general statistical averages and the like can increase your your odds on average, which in turn gives you sort of a better chance. But once you're in a relationship with a particular person, then, you know, things are somewhat different and you should over time learn, you know, ways in which that person is like the statistical average, which many of us are, despite the fact we all like to think that we're very unique, but obviously we are all unique. And so there in almost everybody, there are some ways in which they differ from various uh, statistical generalizations as well. So let's talk a little bit about your your marriage. So you're married to somebody who also has a law degree. Look, as you know, it didn't work for me, but it's clearly working for you. So tell us more about how you think that influences the dynamic in terms of communication, in terms of having things in common versus, I don't know, the stereotype is lawyers both want to have things their own way and are going to argue things to death, right? A little bit of that. And also as, as two busy professionals, how you've navigated 
the division of household labor and the mental labor, such as planning, like we're talking about the planning of dates, right? Maybe now sometimes it's dates, sometimes it's kid stuff, sometimes it's who pays the bills, right? All of that thinking. So yeah, could you can you share some insights from, from your marriage about both of these things? So I certainly would not claim to be any kind of guru on marital happiness or anything like that. And I didn't study it in a systematic way in the way that I did with the dating uh, strategy stuff. But I will say that um, what's important is not so much whether a lawyer is married to another lawyer or dating another lawyer or whatever. What is important, I think there's social science research back this up, is that people have common interests, especially in the modern world, whereas the economists Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfer's show and their work, we've moved from a model of sort of separate spheres marriages where sort of the man had his responsibilities mostly outside the household. And the woman had hers and they could have very different interests and you know they they, they did very different things during the day to a, a world of um what is known as companionate marriage or what you could call what economists call complementarities and consumption where uh the people marry less because they have set queer separately defined roles that they do and more because they have common interests and so what's important for me and my wife is not so much that we're both lawyers but we have a lot of common interests not only in law but in all things like politics history and literature and some other things and that gives it things to talk about things to share and so forth i think that's very important particularly in this sort of modern marriage model which most uh, particularly highly educated people pursue in this day and age so i think it's important to have those common interests you don't have to have all your interests in common I'm a big sports fan. My wife couldn't care less. Very stereotypical, I know. But but that's fine because we have these other interests that we do have in common. So in terms of things like division of labor and the like, again, I, I don't have any perfect formula for this. I don't know that there's a you know, that there's an ideal for it. But obviously, there are challenges when both have, you know, extensive careers outside the household. And we also have two small children. And, you know, we try to divide up household tasks and kid related tasks as, as reasonably as we can. But I admit, I, I don't always get it right. And I, I can be lazy and, uh, you know, screw things up. And, you know, sometimes my wife has legitimate complaints about that, that I have to try to attend to. I think, you know, there is a lot of data which shows that women in general do more of the work in the household, even when, when both have careers. And there's various reasons for that. And I'm not sure, you know, we should aim for a society where that's completely eliminated, but we should be sensitive to the kinds of problems that arise. The one small piece of advice I might make is that in dividing up labor, it isn't necessarily desirable that every specific task be divided up equally. Sometimes it may be desirable for each person to do the thing they're best at or the thing they detest less. So for instance, I deal with everything related to garbage. One reason why is because I have a very bad sense of smell, so I don't mind the smell of garbage, whereas my wife probably does somewhat more. There are some other tasks you know, that she does most of, and you know that's in accordance with a degree of common sense, but it's also for what it's worth in accordance with the economic principle of comparative advantage, which suggests that often it's best to divide up tasks in terms of each person doing the thing they do best, or at least the thing which is less painful for them, rather than try to divide up each task completely equally. Do you have any thoughts, Ilya, on the difficulties or, or maybe comparative advantages of raising children, especially, or being a marriage in general, coming from somewhat different cultural backgrounds. So you, like myself, grew up in an Eastern European family. I mean, you came to the United States at a fairly young age, but that's still a little bit different from the way I take it your wife grew up 
my understanding is she has parents that were born here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you sense whether it was while dating or in your marriage or raising kids that sometimes cultural differences would show up? And how did you navigate through those? So I would say in our case, there were very few cultural differences, even though we certainly do come from these considerably divergent backgrounds. We both grew up in the U.S. and we both have, between the two of us, we have fairly similar values and interests, even though obviously we have you know different ethnic backgrounds. And so between us, there are relatively few disagreements on child raising and household organizational matters and the like. You know, we do do two sets of holidays. I'm from a Jewish background and my wife is from a uh, from a Christian one. But on the other hand, in terms of my actual religious beliefs, I'm an atheist and my wife is an agnostic, which is a very important theoretical difference, but its significance for everyday life is utterly insignificant in that the difference in believing there's definitely no God and believing that there might not be a God or there might be, but we don't have any real guidance from him on you know what we should be doing. That's that's pretty small. Also, you know, my parents obviously there are, there are there are Russian Jews from the Soviet Union, but much of what they did in terms of running the household as they grew up is different from you know what was traditional in Russia, and uh, therefore I didn't get that much of sort of the the Russian model of upbringing, if you want to call it that. So uh, I think that hasn't been a big issue for us. That we we've had other you know disagreements over other things. I do think it's more of an issue. If people grow up to be adults in different, in very different societies, and therefore, you know, somebody who had lived most of their life in Russia versus somebody who had most of their life in the U.S., that might be a more, there might be more issues to navigate in that situation. And it is the case that a lot of social science research shows that one of the predictors of successful marriage is sort of the extent to which people have common values and common expectations and the like. And that doesn't mean that people of different cultures should never marry. Often it can be very successful, but it does mean that it's sort of an issue that you should be aware of and should discuss. We did, in fact, have discussions on stuff like which holidays to celebrate, but it was relatively easy to agree to just do both sets of holidays and the kids certainly like that because they get more presents. Eventually, as my kids get older, I will have to explain things like the extent to which they can be thought of as Jewish or not, given that some Jewish nominations say it's only through matrilineal descent that you can be Jewish. But I think my wife will be able to have, and I will be able to have a fairly easily have a common line on that, in that neither of us ultimately thinks that ethnic identity is what's really important about people. And I actually, you know, have a strong sort of political and ideological view on that as well, which was reflected in some of my academic writings on immigration. Obviously, if I was with somebody for whom ethnic identity is this really important thing in their life, then necessarily there would be, you know, have to be more of a discussion and there would be more potential for conflict. So Ilya, you have been very vocal and written about your experiences doing deciding to do this deep dive into the academic literature, the popular press literature, and what you've learned along the way so much so that people have told you, you should write a book about the topic. And so my question for you is, if you did write a book about the topic, what would be, what's a chapter that easily comes to mind right now? What would be the key chapter that that somebody should hone in on and read if they were to read a book about this topic of how to find success in the dating world? So I, it's very unlikely that I will actually write this book. In order to fully do it, I would have to hone in on and, and bone up on sort of more recent literature than I was on the dating scene. Nonetheless, I think there are some general pieces of advice that I think are useful. We mentioned someone already. One is that it's a numbers game, and therefore you should be aware of that. And 
both online dating and in-person dating, you should be willing to ask out a range of different people. This particularly applies to men because we still have the cultural expectation that men should be the ones to ask people out. But I think it's something for women to consider as well, particularly in a world where more and more, I think, particularly more highly educated men are open to being asked out by women. I know I certainly was back in the day, but I think that's even more true now. So that's one point. A second point is it is useful to look up sort of what are the things that increase the likelihood of getting a response? I, I looked at, we talked about what it, you know, what it is for men, but things are like your education level, income, the prestige of your occupation, and also height, adding even an inch of height that makes a difference. Obviously you can't control your height, but it's useful to be aware of that. And uh, obviously there's also literature on what makes it more likely that men will either seek out a woman online or respond to her communications that literature is not that flattering to the male sex. A lot of it simply is about the person's looks, but it is something that women should be aware of. And they should also be aware of that in this day and age, uh, there, there are a lot of men also who also want you know, somebody with comparable education levels and the like. Another, I think, useful point, and this is for men and women, is that I think you know dating across ethnic lines and religious lines is increasingly common. And particularly if you come from a minority religion or minority ethnic or racial group, this is something that you should be always consider being open to. And the data actually shows that on average, men are more willing to do this than women, right? The men are more willing on average to date across racial lines and across religious ones. And therefore, this actually creates an opportunity for women in that if you are a woman and you are open to doing this, then you can, particularly if you belong to a minority group, you can greatly expand the pool of people that are available to you, even more so than, you know, than a man can do by, you know, taking the same sort of a step. But I would also emphasize, obviously, that some things th that I learned back then may be more applicable to, you know, the dating apps and, you know, that, that were popular then, which are somewhat different uh, than the ones that exist now, though some of the ones that existed back then, like Match.com, are still uh, popular. So, you know, I would urge people to look up sort of how these new apps work. And finally, you know, I think this is useful in any era. Think about your own strengths and weaknesses and what you want, you know, and try to be as objective about it as you can, even though it's hard to be objective about yourself. And, you know, not all the weaknesses that you have can be addressed or I didn't address all of mine, but you can address some of them at the margin and that can improve your situation. And if you think carefully about what sort of person you want to be with, that will both increase your odds of you know, sort of getting that person, but also it may make it more likely that the relationship will be successful afterwards than if you don't think carefully ahead of time and then you end up with somebody that you don't actually want to be with because there are various conflicts and clashes and that's the kind of things you know, that can lead to breakups or uh, in the extreme cases, divorce. Are you sure you aren't writing this book? Because that sounded like a very <laughs> well thought out outline. <laughs> but, you know, I want to I, I want to add in there, you know, it's so funny to me when I was prepping for the show and understanding that you're taking this rationalist approach. You know, when you hear that, the word almost sounds like you're expecting pessimism to come into play. Like it might, made me think of this idea of depressive realism, which is a known phenomenon in my field that demonstrates that people who are depressed actually have more accurate views of the world than people who are not depressed. And so while they're more accurate, they're also, you know, struggling more, or maybe more sad or things like that because of it. It has this air of pessimism to it. But actually in everything you described, 
I feel like this rationalist approach is actually, if anything, optimistic because it really, as you said, makes things more as as much as possible about objectivity, which means in the end that you would take rejection or misalignment, mismatches less personally, feel less hurt, be more aware of the other reasons why something may not work out and be more aware of just realistically what your odds are not having to do anything with the specifics of the situation. So I actually was really pleased to hear that, at least to me, there seems to be an optimistic bent to this rationalist approach, which I think is very refreshing. For what it's worth, I was less often depressed about the stuff after I began to think about it in a systematic, rational way than before, because not everybody necessarily needs to do this sort of thing. If you're the kind of person whose sort of intuitive sense of how to succeed on the dating scene works well, then many of the things that I described that I found out through sort of looking at books or studies or whatever, people sort of just intuitively get who are, who are good at this naturally. But on the other hand, if you're not one of these people, then it can be very depressing because it's like knocking your head against the wall and the wall is still there. And you're like, however, get around the wall. And that can be very depressing and you're an unhappy single person. But then you see like, no, I can actually improve the situation by thinking about it more systematically. And I think it's particularly useful for people who are relatively highly educated and don't mind reading a bunch of books and studies. I readily understand it for somebody sort of a low level of education or just hasn't doesn't have the time or the effort or patience you that, that you know, this advice may be less applicable. But if you are, you know, if, if you're educated, if you're open to reading and learning things, this actually can improve your mood and it's actually empowering and optimistic. And certainly I found it to be that way. There's obviously even still there were the occasional setback and painful moments, but the incidence of them declined over time. Uh, And that's what you want to have. You you want to have less depression and less pain, even if you can't eliminate it completely. Well, and I think that that goes together very well with some of the ideas we've discussed, but like Amy Webb's book, Data, A Love Story, right? And a number of other books like that, where ultimately it takes people, to borrow from another concept from psychology, it takes them out of learned helplessness, which is in a sense what Ilya was just talking about and, and gives them practical tools. And, and those are also some tools we talk about uh, on this show. Some of our listeners might also want to go back and listen to our episode about happy relationships, right? That go from the dating stage into talking about what are the things that tend to make people happy down the line when they've been together longer. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Ilya. What a wonderful conversation and hopefully a lot of inspiration for others out there who might be trying to feel their way through the dating world and uh, that there is hope for them if they take perhaps this more academic bookish approach to things. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com, no the. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Falstadon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Frini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kuyushuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.